Psalm 21 is our text today. This is a companion psalm to last week. We really have last week is, is initiated by the people of the kingdom of God. That is a request on behalf of the king and is responded to there where we went to the first person singular. So we went from we to I. And so certainly we saw the evidence of Christ there. We now have a secondary response, a second psalm in this series. And in the next two weeks, we're going to be into Psalm 22, which really is going to portray for us. We're going to take two weeks because there's no way to go through. There are two very distinct parts of that psalm. So we're going to be looking at some of the specific things, the sacrifice, and then the results of that sacrifice the next couple of weeks. Um, but So really we have this these last few psalms that are starting out with the title, For the End. And again, referring to the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning again, Jesus Christ. And we're not going to see very many more of these once we get through these. Uh, we're going to see uh, one or two along the way once we clear chapter 22. And we're going to have, until we get to chapter 40 in the 40s. And then we'll visit a lot more of these that really have their focus on uh, the one Jesus Christ. And so we uh, are in the middle, really, of another trilogy of psalms that we want to look at and are pointing us to Christ as king, particularly in these two psalms, this pairing. And then next week we'll be looking more at him as our uh, savior, as our sacrifice. And so let's read it together, Psalm 21. And please follow along in your copy of God's word as I read it. For the end. A Psalm of David. The king shall have joy in your strength, O Lord, and in your salvation how greatly shall he rejoice. You have given him his heart's desire and have not withheld the request of his lips. Selah. For you meet him with the blessings of goodness. You set a crown of pure gold upon his head. He asked life from you, and you gave it to him. Length of days forever and ever. His glory is great in your salvation. Honor and majesty you have placed upon him. For you have made him most blessed forever. You have made him exceedingly glad with your presence. For the king trusts in the Lord. And through the mercy of the Most High, he shall not be moved. Your hand will find all your enemies. Your right hand will find those who hate you. You shall make them as a fiery oven in the time of your anger. The Lord shall swallow them up in his wrath. And the fire shall devour them. Their offspring you shall destroy from the earth. And their descendants from the, among the sons of men. For they intended evil against you. They devised a plot which they were not able to perform. Therefore, you will make them turn their back. You will make ready your arrows on your string toward their faces. Be exalted, O Lord, in your own strength. We will sing and praise your power. We come into this companion psalm where we really saw the request of the people that their king be successful that their king uh, acquire, not success in terms of an earthly sense, although there is that aspect of it, but we saw the different areas that the first he would have uh, victory over his enemies, knowing that his enemies are our enemies, if we are part of his kingdom. And then the whole idea of having success in the building of his kingdom. And we, of course, see that, that we want Christ not only to give us victory over our enemies of sin and death as he has done. And we will demonstrate that in chapter 22, how he did that. Uh, but that was our request. So we want him to have victory over our enemies. 
which are his enemies, that we want to see that accomplished, but that he also wants to build up his church. And that's really the last half of chapter 22. We're going to see that evidence, and we're going to see that term used. It's not going to be called church in your text, but it is the word church in Hebrew. And so we're going to visit that in those chapters as well. Or in that one chapter, it'll be a couple of weeks from now. And so we find that that was our request. And of course, we see the expectation, the confidence that God will provide that. Now we have the answer. Now many will say, well, this is the people talking about their king again because it's in the second person. And so it's he, he, he. Um, but it, uh, I wasn't laughing there. <laughs> it's he, him. Uh, give him his request. Uh, we find that the uh, that this is really more of his response to their request. And certainly it is possible that this is uh, also expected to be sung by the uh, people of the kingdom, but it's really focused on the statement of the king that what you have requested of God for me, God has given me. But as very typical in royal psalms, they don't speak of themselves in the first person. Very seldom will royalty do that. Even to this day, we aren't really uh, connected to royalty very much because in our history we have rejected that um, format, which has really decimated our concept of biblical kingship. And so the royalty would refer to themselves because they didn't. They understand that they are not they're an individual anymore. Uh, they, they represent an entire kingdom, and, and they are the anointed, the, the selected ones of God. And so they often disassociate their personal interests from their royal interests, and to do that, they talk about themselves in the second person. Uh, and that is very common, and again, has persisted for thousands of years to continue that. And that, that is a mindset, it is not a an air that they put on, it is a, is a mindset that their interest personally uh, should not be confused with their interest royally, that they have responsibilities that, that override their personal interests and desires. And so uh, I would hold that this is the psalm's response, that as the king has heard in song, perhaps at a coronation event or some celebration of anniversary of that, that we certainly have the king hearing their request, and now we're going to see him almost with the exact same tempo respond. So very probably the same tune is being used in both of these psalms, and you'll see that, that you have opening statement, a pause, and then a response, and a transition to a second point of this. And so we're actually going to do the reverse of what we saw in the last psalm, where we're going to see destroy our enemies, and then build your kingdom. We're going to see that reversed in this psalm. We're going to see build his kingdom and then destroy the enemies. And of course, we have apocalyptic expectations with regard to this for Jesus Christ. And so let's look into this psalm and, uh, and go through this and work our way. And so our introductory statements here, I believe by the king responding, is the king shall have joy in your strength, O Lord. And again, he is speaking to God in front of his people, who have also spoken to God in his presence for him. And so that uh, I will have joy, and of course that is the, the desire, is that the Lord would answer you, the Lord would give you the desires of your heart, 
and whatever you pray for, that that is accomplished. And he is going to report to them that in fact the king shall have joined the strength of the Lord, that in his salvation or your salvation, he's speaking to God, uh, how greatly he shall rejoice. The expectation is, is that if our king is, is rejoicing and is serving the Lord and is uh, successful in his reign, that there should be a joyfulness. And the king is responding, saying, yes, I have joy, not in myself, not in my own endeavors, not even in my own desires. I have my joy is in the strength of the Lord. My joy is there. He is accomplishing things in my life, and I have expectations there that he will continue that, and we're going to move that into that whole idea of salvation. And, and, and he, he really references it already, that it is the strength of the Lord that the king reigns. When we apply this to Jesus Christ, we, we hopefully recognize that his time on earth was not a big downer time. I mean, one of the accusations against him is, well, you go out and party all the time. Your disciples, they never fast. This is You're going out with publicans and sinners, and, and you're feasting here and feasting there, and there's a crowd following him. Of course, if they get hungry, he just feeds them too. It doesn't take much to get that started. And everyone wants to make him king. If you'll remember, after the feeding of the 5,000, one of the problems was they said, well, let's just make him king right here on the spot. And that, and Jesus Christ knew that that was their desire, and certainly that is communicated in these psalms, that they want him as their king. Uh, and certainly God is working through Jesus Christ in a powerful way, which we expect, right? And so we have people raised from the dead. We have, we have blind getting their sight. We have demons being cast out. We have, we have all these miracles happening. We have the feeding here and the feeding there. And, and just tremendous. Can you imagine the, the attitude of the people during that time? This is a joyful time for Israel. Her Messiah has come and is performing great works in their sight, in their midst. And they get to be recipients of that. And you see how these crowds follow him and how many people are healed. And we come to the story of the man who was brought in through the roof of the building because there were so many people. There's so much excitement around this person, Jesus Christ. And remember, the desire was, we're going to make you king. And Christ knows that there's something that has to happen first, that he has to be the sacrifice for that happens. And so even that joyfulness, he says, well, I'm going to get in a boat and leave. He had to force the disciples to do that too, because they were kind of with the crowd too. <laughs> Sounds like a good plan. Let's make you king. Let's get rid of these Romans. Let's get rid of this religious, religious leadership and set you up. I mean, what do we need from Rome now? If you can do, if you can calm the wind and the waves, certainly you can take care of a few Roman soldiers, right? Lots of expectation. But Christ knows that there's still Psalm 22. He knows what's coming. He knows what has to be accomplished for his kingdom to traverse more than the geopolitical realm. For his kingdom to go and stretch into eternity, to go beyond this world, requires that he must deal with the real enemy of man, and that is our sin and its consequence of death. And so he is going to take that on. He's going to reign victorious there. But certainly during his time here, he was known as someone who was joyful. And he says, I'm rejoicing in the strength of the Lord, and he's serving. He is serving the people of God, and it's an exciting time. And of course, salvation, he is, is him. 
He is salvation for Israel and for the world. And in verse 2, we find that he's reporting is that God, and again, he does this in a prayer format, much like the people did. We're going to pray for you in front of you. He's going to pray to God in front of them. You have given him his heart's desire and have not withheld the request of his lips. And again, this is exactly what they prayed for in the previous psalm in verse 4, that you would give him his heart's desire. And so he's reporting to him that that's exactly what has been accomplished. Well, what is the desire of Christ's heart? The desire of Christ's heart, well, he communicates that in John 3, right? That he was sent to obey the Father, to, to provide salvation, that whoever believed in the Son could have everlasting life. That's what his desire is. And his expectation is fully accomplished that God will give him the desire of his heart. It is already in motion. While his time hasn't come yet, perhaps at the time of thinking of this psalm, it is on the very cusp and everything has been set in motion for it to happen in its time uh, around that time of Passover. And so his expectation is, is that this is my heart's desire. We find out later in God's word what? That for the joy that was set before him, he endured the cross, despising the same as shame, and is set down at the right hand of the Father. He had an expectation. He, it wasn't something he, he drug his feet to go kicking and screaming to Calvary. Rather, it was his heart's desire, his purpose in coming was to provide for the salvation of sinful men, that they could have their sins forgiven, they could overcome death, they could have eternity guaranteed for them in, in the Father's presence, and all of that was the desire of God's heart. That's why he came that's why he lived. That's why he was sacrificed. And so that was his desire. And he says, I'm getting that. And everything Christ asked for was not withheld. Everything that came from his lips. And again, this is a very typical Hebrew expression. Uh, it goes all the way back to the prophets. It says not a word would drop. Uh, that was spoken of Samuel. Whatever he said, God says, I'm going to, I'm behind that. I'm standing behind that. I'm going to make that happen. Uh, whether he consulted me or not, everything Samuel says is going to happen. And that was typical of the prophets of God, that what they said, God would not let their words fall to the ground. And certainly with Christ, that is the case. And so we talk about, we even have a song that talks about, you know, he could have called 10,000 angels. Uh, yes, any request he made, and that's why the prayer in Gethsemane is so vitally important that Christ there could have opted out. If his prayer was incomplete, if we did not have that one single phrase of that prayer, we would be destined for hell with no help. And that single statement is, Father, not my will, but yours be done. That one statement encapsulates this whole idea that, that he is putting his personal interests aside to take on his royal interests of his kingdom. And the kingdom is that of God's kingdom. And that's why I come to this and I see the appropriateness of this for that was the statement of him where he was certainly he was not looking forward to all the pain and punishment, the, the bloodletting, the, the violence that would be perpetrated against him 
the shame that would be brought upon him, and the darkness, the separation from the Father, none of that was appealing to him as a person. But it was his heart's desire to take on death for you. And so that phrase is where he distinguishes his own interests from those of the kingdom. And that is royalty. And that is why we worship him as king of our lives. For not only is he the sacrifice, not only is he the priest, not only has he, he been our savior, but he is the king who has set aside his own interests. And even the Father has done that in his royal setting. Um, in John 3.16, For God so loved the world, he gave up what? His only begotten Son. He sent him. And the Son was willing to do that. And so they set aside those personal interests to just embrace their royal responsibilities. And for the sake of his kingdom, he wants a kingdom of saints. He wants a kingdom of priests. He wants a kingdom of co-heirs, of brethren. And to accomplish that requires his sacrifice. And so, no, he wouldn't have called for 10,000 angels on the cross. But had he, it would have been done. But God did not keep any request that Christ asked for from him. So we come to verse 3 and we see this development. And again, the comparison to the kingdom, the building of the kingdom itself. Uh, which is the second half of the last psalm, is the first half of this psalm now. Once we've gotten through the pause, and a dramatic pause there in this, and so we should probably take one minute to be paused. That's five seconds. I can't do it. I'm not very good at that. I don't think they paused for a full minute. Maybe they did, but that would be hard to do in a song, wouldn't it? Maybe one measure. So we have a rest. And now, having heard the king, we have opportunity to reflect on these two areas of concern that we were introduced to last week, but in reverse order. For the building of the kingdom of God is about setting the king in his palace. It's about setting the king in his reign. It's about his rulership over his kingdom. And we're going to get to his enemies here in a little bit. And in Sunday school this morning, you talked about that David had rest from all of his enemies. And certainly that is expectation that's going to happen later on in your kingdom reign uh, where he is established. But um, these are two dual aspects of the king. He is going to destroy our enemies. He's going to be a lead us into battle. He's going to give us that victory. But he's also going to build our nation. He's going to put in that infrastructure. He's going to make sure the poor are cared for. He's going to make sure there's justice in the land. He's going to make sure of all these things. And so we begin in verse 3. For you meet him with the blessings of goodness. You set a crown of pure gold upon his head. You asked, he asked life from you. You gave it to him, length of days, forever and ever. And so we begin with blessings. And we understand blessings much like the Jewish community did there, the Hebrew community. And so the concept of blessings is coming out of the goodness of God. That if we're a nation, if we are people that are serving God, our expectation is, is that we will have the blessing of God upon us. And the king reports here that, yes, God's blessings are here. You, they will be showered upon you. Our expectation is not just to have sin and death taken away, but that he will bless us. And certainly we see the coming of the Holy Spirit upon the church as his blessing. We see the... the um, 
working of God through his word and his people around us, his blessing. We have all these spiritual and material and physical blessings of God upon us that we can have the peace and confidence that wherever I go, he is with me. The expectation of his work in my life, uh, that's a blessing. And so he says the blessing of God's goodness is upon us, that we have that as our heritage. That is who we are now in Christ. We have that blessing upon us of God's goodness. We have an expectation of that. Uh, and so my last conversation with Elizabeth, it was kind of one-sided, um, but uh, was God's faithful. God is faithful. God is faithful. We can trust in him. He is faithful. His goodness never ceases. You cannot run out of resources when we're trusting in God in terms of blessing. And so that, the statement is here, if the king is blessed, so we will be blessed. And this is very important because when we talk about Christ as our brethren, as our joint heir, everything that's being attributed to the king, we get to participate in. That's what it means to be a joint heir with Jesus Christ. So as he sets up, when he, we talk about his crown here in a second, when he has that crown, we are talked about, well, we will rule and reign with him. So we have an expectation that if God is placing this upon the king, he is similarly, we are the sharers of that blessing. For the king here is not representing himself, but his kingdom. He has disassociated his personal interests from this. Hence the second person pronouns. And so we find him doing this. So that means we get to share in this. And so when, when we find this whole idea of the crown of Pure gold, a crown of pure gold upon his head that you that God has said you are worthy. Well, when did that happen? Is it still to happen? Has it happened? Is the question, and the, and the answer is yes, it has. It's been recorded for us in God's word. In Revelation, we have his arrival in heaven, and the whole song of heaven is you are worthy. Who is worthy? The Lamb. The lion of the tribe of Judah is worthy to receive glory, honor, praise, and blessing, and that he is given the throne, and then he is given the scroll to open the seals, and, and things start happening in heaven. When did that happen? That does, that's not a future event. That has already happened. That's when Christ ascended into heaven. That's when his victory was accomplished in heavenly circles. And the crown of pure gold, and there is no pure gold here, the pure gold is a heavenly gold, is on his head. And so we have a Savior who is crowned in glory and on a throne in heaven, and we share in his victory, in his elevation. And when Philippians tells us that he humbled himself and became a servant, and then God highly exalted him, we understand that we humble ourselves before God with an expectation that as he has exalted Christ, we'll be exalted with him. And the fact that all this has happened to Christ should give us a confidence that we, it will happen. God is faithful. He will do it in his goodness. And this gets even more exciting than this as we get through this part of the text. It says, he asked life from you and you gave it to him. Length of days forever and ever. Now, we could look at this and say, well, Peter asked for life. and oh, I'm sorry, Peter. <laughs> Where did I get that from? David asked for life, and God gave it to him. 
on these occasions, and certainly that is the case. Um, but really, when we look to Christ, what are we seeing? We're seeing the resurrection. When Christ declared, in your hands I commit my spirit, uh, he is giving his life into God's hands. When God responds with the resurrection, that is the life. And it is life not uh, just to live a little longer and then die. That happened to Lazarus, right? That was a resurrection of the flesh, um, but not the eternal one. This one says, I want life that goes forever and ever. This is the resurrection unto life. And let me, let me be really specific here. There is a resurrection to death. The Bible says all will be resurrected, some to everlasting life and some to everlasting destruction. And so you want to be part of the first resurrection, which is the resurrection of life, and Christ is the first fruits of that resurrection. And so his life, if you don't have a living Christ, if your Jesus is still on a cross, if you're walking around with a crucifix and that is your concept of Jesus Christ, you have missed the blessing of God's goodness because he is a resurrected Lord. He is a living God, living Lord, living Savior, and that is done by the work of God. And again and again in Acts, you read in the sermons, the person you crucified, God raised from the dead. Repeated again and again. And so this request, where does the life come from? Well, it's not just, uh, I want a good life here on earth, you know, and that's what Satan offers you. He'll, Satan will offer you a good life in the flesh, but it'll destroy you. What God is offering you is life forevermore. And that's what our expectation is. And because Christ is a, our living Savior, Muhammad is dead, we have his tomb around here. Confucius is dead. His tomb is around here somewhere on this old earth. Uh, go through them all. They're all dead. Jesus Christ is alive. His body isn't around here anymore. It's not on the earth. He is the only one. And thus he is the only king, and he is the only savior, and he is the only one you should be trusting in. He asked life from God, and God gave it to him. Length of days forever and ever. Verse 5, it continues, that if that's not enough, I mean, that's pretty good. What do you want from your government? Life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. Does that sound familiar to you? That's what our forefathers wanted. They thought that was our inalienable right that God gave us, which isn't anywhere in the Bible. Uh, but spelled out here in the kingdom of God, you want life? You will find it in Jesus Christ. Let's see what else we have in store for us. Verse 5, His glory is great in your salvation, honor and majesty you have placed upon Him. For you have made Him most blessed forever. So we talked about in heaven, in the arrival of the, of the Lamb of God, newly slain, the, the line of the tribe of Judah, that the songs changed, that the glory was, that was focused on the creative acts of God were now transitioned. And now the premium, uh, the highest work of God is now the work of Jesus Christ. And that is what we're going to sing about. And the glory and the honor and the majesty is there. And it is no mistaking that by the time we get to Revelation 7 and we arrive there, that what are we? We are dressed in white and we get to worship with the Lamb in His presence. 
Wow. That those who are, who are the most humiliated on the earth, who, that were slain for his name, we find them in the highest places at the, underneath the very throne of God with access to the ear of God. And as the prayers of the saints are offered up on the, on the altar of God and the incense that raised up from it. And we're going to talk about that here in a little bit in the last half of the psalm. And so we find this uh, honor and majesty, this glory that is shared with us. And we get to participate with him. What has been placed upon him will be placed upon us. It is not our own. Certainly, we didn't deserve it or earn it. That's why it's grace. And that's why it requires us to receive it for ourselves. And again, the concept of eternal blessedness in that state. And we have now moved to have made him exceedingly glad with your presence. This is, again, the concept of joy and is just overwhelming joy. To be in the presence of God forever and ever. In a royal scenario, um, you can be in a, in a kingdom and be blessed, right? Because you have a great king and a, no enemies and, and prosperous. And, and so everyone in the kingdom prospers uh, and, and there's that level. Okay, and, and that would be enough for most of us, right? That's not enough for God. Then there's the other level of saying, well, I'm in the royal court. And that is that I'm among those that are in the lead. And God says, well, that's okay, but that's not high enough either. I'm bringing you right up into the very throne room of the king. That you are in his presence. That you go where the king goes. Wow. Now I'm part of the royal entourage that is that travels with the king that 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 advise that gets to enjoy everything the king enjoys. I often wondered about secret service agents. You ever think they they get to go to a lot of great places, don't they? When they have to travel with the president, just think wherever the president goes, they get to go all over the world and Camp David and golfing wherever it is. They got to go with them. Oh, I have to go golfing today. It's my job. Because the president's going. Uh, well, we get to go wherever Jesus goes. <laughs> Whatever he's participating, I'm pretty sure it's pretty better than golf. Um, even the Bahamas. Uh, pick your Bahamas on that. Um, it's, I get to go wherever Jesus goes. I'm going to be in his presence. There's exceeding gladness there. This is what we look forward to. To be in his presence, and we anticipate that because... Christ is in His presence. We look forward to joining Him in that place and in that time. Verse 7 kind of wraps up the whole idea of building the kingdom. And for the king trusts in the Lord and through the mercy of the Most High He shall not be moved. And this is that steadfastness that, that no one can take this away. And this again takes you into the New Testament. You know, what did Christ offer you? You know, you get into my hand you get into my Father's hand, no one can take you out of my hand. There is something immovable about uh, a living God, Lord, King, uh, who has all the power, and now we trusting in Him, we will not be moved. None of these things, the song says, move me. 
Why? Because I trust in the Lord who has done all of this and it all waits for me to fully enjoy one day. I enjoy <laughs> showers. I enjoy mercy drops. And it certainly talks about the mercy of the Lord. The song says, mercy drops around me are falling, but for the showers I plead. We look forward to that time we have all this in fullness. We see pieces of it here. Uh, and many times our flesh gets in the way and circumstances get in the way and our own our own unbelief gets in the way because we really don't believe a lot of this. It is kind of unbelievable that His royal majesty of all the earth is going to call us into His presence to enjoy everything the Father has granted to Him. He earned it. We don't. And this is a wow psalm. Because what happened to Jesus wasn't for him personally. It was for his kingdom. For he is the king. Well, I don't know what more can entice you to trust in Christ. I don't know a bigger carrot. You could have some giant carrots, by the way, if you want this week. Uh, I don't know what bigger carrot you can use to lure someone to Christ. I don't know how much more you can offer them. You know, you, you want to find a nation that has prosperity, that has righteousness reigning, that that there's no death, and there and, and you get to walk around with the king and and yeah, I'd like to find that country. I want to go. I'm more than happy to be an expat of a democracy to go be in that kingdom of that king uh, if I could do that in this earth. That's a pretty big carrot. There's a few countries right now that are struggling keeping their population and they've started throwing out big carrots. You come to our country and we and and you buy a home here and you you spend $100,000, you automatically become a citizen, you automatically get this and you don't get taxed. Because they're just trying to populate their countries. And they want you to bring your retirement money there, certainly. But the whole idea is that we need people to come in and we want people to come in with resources. And so they throw out these offers, really. Come to our country and we'll get you, uh, you buy a house here, we'll give you automatic citizenship. And, and that's very enticing. I don't, know, <laughs> I don't know if there can be a more enticing few verses to come be a part of this kingdom of God. But if it's not enough, and you still want to hold out and say, no, I'm going to rule my own kingdom. I don't need Jesus. I don't want Jesus. Well, if that's not enough, the big carrot to chase and to say, that's a big offer God's offering me in Christ Jesus if I follow after Him, trusting in Him, humbling Himself before Him and, and praying the same prayer, not my will but yours be done. We have an alternative. And the end of this psalm is a frightening alternative. It cannot be more black and white than this psalm. Your choice is, 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 is clear. There is no gray verse between verse 7 and verse 8. There is no space in there for neutral ground. There is no Switzerland spiritually. That's a neutral country in World War II. 
There is no place like that. You either are in the kingdom of God and have all these extraordinary blessings. I'm not even going to call them rights. You have these extraordinary privileges granted to you by the grace of the King of kings and Lord of lords to join with the king. Or you are not. And if you are not, then you are his enemy. You are an enemy of Christ. And in that condition, this is what awaits you. And we have it spelled out very quickly here and clearly. Your hand will find all your enemies. There is no hiding from the king of kings. Not physically, not spiritually, not psychologically, <laughs> uh, not metaphysically. There is no hiding, not philosophically. You cannot hide from him. You can deny truth all you want, but you can't hide from it. Can you? I mean, you can deny the fact that heavy objects fall through lighter objects and, and hit the ground. You can deny it all you want. Jump from the plane and you will find out that density matters. Whether you believe in it or not, it will find you out. And you will splat yourself on the ground. The enemies of God will be found. You cannot hide from him. Again, in Revelation, in the same context, we talk about the martyrs. One of the very next verses talks about when Christ appears, men will be so terrified, they will try to run into caves and ask the rocks to fall down on them that they might hide themselves from the face of him who sits on the throne. But there will be no hiding. You are his enemy, and it's too late, and now you are found out. Do you think David knew about hiding from your enemy? <laughs> I mean, he hid from Saul for years, right? But you will not be able to hide from the king of kings. God's right hand will find those who hate you. You want to despise the offer of God? He'll find you. And the same strength and authority that gives blessings to the saints is the same strength and authority that will come and judge. And he will not do it nicely. And that's why we call that time the outpouring of God's wrath. And the next verse talks about that. You shall make them as a fiery oven in the time of your anger. The Lord shall swallow them up in his wrath and the fire shall devour them. And again, time does not permit me to go into Revelation and start right after we arrive in heaven <laughs> and all of that excitement happens and there's silence and the last things are set up and, and there's 144,000 have been sealed on the earth among Hebrew people. And, and then it begins. One, two, three four trumpet judgments, all of them involving fire. All of them fiery. The earth is going to burn, and it's not because of climate change, it's because of God's intervention. You think this month has been hot? Wait till you see when God's really mad. It says one, a third of the vegetation will be destroyed, not... I've, I've got through the month. 
A third of my vegetation is still intact, or two-thirds, more than two-thirds of my vegetation is intact. We can survive that. You cannot survive God's rage. You think God's not capable of rage, of anger? Oh, yes. And he will pour that out. He destroyed the earth with a flood. He says, I won't do that again, but that is not the only instrument at his disposal. And now as he destroyed Sodom and Gomorrah by raining brimstone upon them, that still lights on fire when you uncover it in the soil down there. Uh, it'll still ignite just by the air. Sulfur. We have God's fiery judgment upon the earth that things purified by fire, that God will pour it out just as we have every confidence in his blessing, we have every confidence in his judgment. This is what waits men who reject the offer of his kingdom. In their arrogance and pride, they think they can hide, they think they can endure, and they cannot. And not only them, but their children. And again, I think most politically correct Christians would have a problem with this because we believe God is anti-abortion and we find something very different in God's word. Um, he says abortion, when you have babies dying and being ripped from people's wombs, that is not cause for God's judgment, that is God's judgment. That when a nation selects that, that that is evidence of the complete depravity that is there and the, and the extraordinary selfishness that is there, but God allows that even acknowledges it and uses it to destroy a people by destroying the next generation. Yes, every man, woman, and child in Jericho was destroyed. All the Canaanites were told were, were to be eliminated uh, because of generational nature of sin. And so we come to this and we say, well, their offspring shall destroy from the earth their descendants from among the sons of men. And so, yes, even it goes down into your offspring and it's easy for me as an old man to say well my offspring are adults now they probably deserve it because they but for you younger ones who are just having babies right now you say how do they because of your evil because of our generational evil because we have rejected christ this is the cost and he says that in the next verse that is because of what you intended you they intend evil against christ they they plotted against him they weren't able to perform it. They wanted to bypass the concept that Jesus is king. They wanted to deny him, not only personally, but as a, as a people, which does include your children. When we see children walking around cursing Christ at extraordinarily early ages, we should recognize what they're doing. They are intending evil against Christ. They are devising a plot, even though they aren't able to enact it fully, for God's judgment will come, they want to completely dismiss Jesus Christ. They don't want you to know him, except for a curse word. They want you to despise, to ridicule, all the same things the mob did to Christ at the crucifixion. They entice our young people, our adults, 
uh, to do that together, to laugh at them, to point, to spit, to do violence against them. And God says, I will judge that. I won't let that come. I won't let that go unanswered. There's, there, there, <laughs> there will be a punishment. It might seem like they're getting away with it, but they aren't. God is recording that, and it will not come to its fullness. That is, they are plotting and plotting and engaging, but the fullness of their action will not come. Much like the people of the Tower of Babel. They had a plan, right? They're going to build to God. Did, they, did God stop them with the second stone, the third stone they set? Oh, no. They, oh, they're building pretty high, I guess. Um, well, if I leave them alone, they'll do it. Just think about that. That's God's estimation of man. It also tells you that heaven might be closer than you think, than you've been led to believe. God says, I'll frustrate their plan. And the concept is here again, the, the plan is coming together and it looks like all the pieces are fitting and, and it, they've got it all coordinated and they're accomplishing their goals, their objectives. It seems like they are certainly moving towards their plan to obfuscate Christ and his kingdom, to just remove it from the psyche of the world. We don't want any information about it, and we want essentially the world to be ignorant of it, or at, at worst or at best, we want them to, to laugh at it and ridicule it and hate it. And Christ says, you're not going to finish that. I'll bring an end to it before you ever get to its fullness. And therefore, in verse 12, we conclude this section of God destroying His enemies. You will make them turn their back. That is, you will make them uh, sorry to run away, to hide, it is incredible to even think of what Armageddon entails. The men are so arrogant as to think that they can muster a force that can make war with God. But that's how ignorant, that's how foolish the world will become. And our world is becoming that, has become that. But God says, I'll make you turn your back. This is the sign of defeat. This is the sign of abject humiliation. You will be humbled by God. And Christ says, every knee shall bow. Every tongue shall confess that He is Lord. One day they will be made. And the conquered enemy is brought before the king and they are forced to bow before they lose their life. This is the king's right. You will choose one of these two outcomes for your life. There is no other one. There's no other alternative available. There's no third option. There is not a drop-down menu. This is it. You either are part of his kingdom and have incredible privileges, or you are his enemy and you will have extraordinary penalty. 
One is life, the other one is death. Not just a single death event, but eternal death. One is blessing and one is punishment. One is joy and one is sorrow. These are the simple choices that confront you today when we think of Christ as our King. Verse 13, we finalize all of this is to exalt be exalted, O Lord, in your strength. We sing, will sing praise. We will sing and praise your power. You see, the same power is evident in both. And so when I praise God for all that he has accomplished for me in Christ Jesus and all of my expectation and all that he is that that is meant and, and filled up with the resurrection power of Christ. When Paul speaks of that in Roman in, in Philippians 3, he says, I, I want to participate in that, in the power of that resurrection. All of that, that same power, is the same power. The power that can rule and conquer and give you victory over sin and death is the same power that will destroy his enemies. You will be within the context of the power of God one way or another. He will be exalted in your life. He could be exalted in your life by you surrendering yourself to him, trusting in him, and him <laughs> bringing you into his kingdom and you can humbly serve him the balance of your days and enjoy everything he enjoys or you will exalt his power. You will recognize his strength by being under the penalty of his wrath forever. It's the same power. You will be under it for the balance of your existence. It is your choice, however, in which department you want to serve his power for you will be exalting christ one way or the other and so the psalmist concludes we will sing and praise your power we often talk about singing in heaven and and my wife has been singing to elizabeth a lot this week and that's precious singing, but we forget that songs of lament are singing too. And that people in a place of punishment called the lake of fire will be singing to God's glory and power too. But that will be the dirge. That will be the song of sorrow. That will be the song of lament. I don't want to have any of those in your future. And that's why we don't sing those at the funeral of unbelievers. We don't sing the songs of lament. They have no place there. For we are members of the kingdom of God and we have nothing but joy and wonder and blessing. The song of lament is not only appropriate for us, but for those in the lake of fire, they cry out. And that cry is heard. And that cry exalts the God they thought they could short-circuit and ignore. They thought they could put him off. They thought they could just pretend he wasn't there. They thought they could fight him. And the song of lament of the enemy, of the conquered enemy, exalts his power too.
We don't like that side. But the fact is, is that this has been true throughout history. We've understood that back when we were more aware. When kings would bring their enemies, and perhaps the best biblical example is Samson. Boy, once you have conquered your enemy, having him come in and hear him sing the songs of lament, the kings would do that. In fact, one of the things that we hear in Babylon was that the, the Babylonians called out to the Hebrew people, oh, sing us your songs of lament. Let's hear those songs of sorrow. Why? Because their sorrow means we had victory. And so, yes, everyone will sing exalting songs to God's power. But will your song be one of joy or one of lament? Is your choice. Let's pray. Lord God, we do thank you for a powerful psalm and a powerful offer and a powerful warning. And Lord, we rejoice in what you have accomplished through the King, Jesus Christ. You have conquered our enemies and you will one day conquer all of your enemies. You'll find them all. Lord, our prayer is that if there are any enemies here today of your kingdom, that they might repent. (laughs) They might turn and want to say, no, I want to be a citizen of that kingdom. They might do so today. Lord, we thank you for so much that you have given us so wonderful a salvation you have provided for us. We thank you for your grace and mercy extended toward us and for the power to bring salvation into our lives, to make us new creatures, to count us worthy of your kingdom. Lord, we recognize that with such a great offer, there is a great penalty for rejecting it. And while we see that day approaching very quickly, we are frightened a little bit by it, not for ourselves, but for those that we sometimes encounter every day who are destined for that they do not turn to you. Lord, keep them upon our hearts and our prayers and may you continue to convict them of their sin. May we be faithful in declaring to them the good news that they can leave a kingdom of destruction to surrender to the kingdom of life. Lord, we thank you again. For this time, we can spend your word together and we want to lift up your name and sing your praises to your power. In Christ Jesus' name, amen.